Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. And he, meaning God, said to me, send, said, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that you that a prophet has been among them, and you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house house. How, how did God describe the nation of Israel over and over and over in this section? Rebellious, rebellious, rebellious. Now I'm going to take you on a journey tonight from scripture and we, we're not even going to come close to getting into the, the full detail of it. But before we do, I want to get, protect you from having a wrong attitude. We're going to talk about how rebellious Israel has been. And I'm going to lay out some things for you tonight that even you might not have ever really looked at when it comes to the rebelliousness of Israel. But I don't want you to sit there going, boy, are they bad people. Because I hope you understand that apart from Christ, you and I are the exact same way. Amen. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure and wicked. Without God, we're just as rebellious. And even though we've been saved, we still wrestle sometimes against the spirit, don't we? We still sometimes grieve the Spirit and resist the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at the nation of Israel, don't fall into the trap of thinking, boy, they were really wicked. There would we be as well if it weren't for Jesus. All right? But I want to take you all the way back to when God called Abram. The father of the nation of Israel, we know him as Abraham, but his name was Abram at the time that he was called. And go with me to Genesis chapter 12, and I want to show you that Abram was rebellious. We, we love to talk about Genesis chapter 12 as the call of Abram. And I want you to see tonight that actually Genesis chapter 12 is not the call of Abram. Even though our Bible's in the handwritten headings, if you will. When I say handwritten, I mean this was written by man, not by God. The little headings above your chapters, that's not inspired. You're going to see that this isn't the call of Abram. This is the reminder of the call of Abram. It says in chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, now this ESV says said, but if you notice in the ESV, if you have a little note there, see that little note? It takes you down to the bottom of the page. And some of your notes would say, or had said. Actually, some of your translations even say, the Lord had said to Abram. That's a good translation. Because as you're about to see, this is not the first time God calls Abram. This is a reminder of God's call to Abram, and he wasn't obedient fully when God called him the first time. Let me show you what I mean in just a second. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So what were the instructions? What had God said to Abram? Leave your country and your father's house. Your family, if you will. Leave your family, leave your country, and come to a land that I'll show you. We're going to see whether or not he did that. And God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. 
We already see a little hint here that there's some disobedience. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of, then they came to the land of Canaan. Um, let me just stop there. That's, we've got enough to get us where we need to go. Genesis 12 is a restart. Go with me to Acts chapter 7. Let me show you what I mean. Put a bookmark here in Genesis 12, because you're coming back to Genesis in chapter 12 and 2nd. Actually, Genesis 11. But in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching right before they killed him, by the way. And in this sermon that he preaches, he lays out the history of Israel. In Acts chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in where? Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So here we see that when God called Abram, he was in the Ur of the Chaldeans, land of Mesopotamia, and he was told to leave his family and his land and come to a land that God would show him. As you're about to see, go back to Genesis chapter 11. When God called him from Mesopotamia, he doesn't fully obey. Not only did he bring Lot with him, he brought his father, the one he had been told to leave your family. He brings him with him. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 31 and following. At the end of chapter 11, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they did what? They settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your land and from your family to a land that I'll show you. What does Abram do? He brings his dad, he brings his nephew, and they on the way stop in Haran and settle there. Even Abram was disobedient. He's a rebellious person just like you and me. Oh, then his father dies and God reminds him of the call. And says, I want you to leave there and come into a land that I'll show you. That's chapter 12. What does he do? He brings Lot. Now later on, as he's coming into the land of Canaan, he and Lot get into a disagreement because of the herds getting so big. And they decide to part company, which God says, finally. And he lets Lot choose whichever he wants to go. And Abram chooses what's left. As you know, Lot chooses Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes down into that area. And he settles there. Of course, as you know the story, because of the wickedness of that nation, God comes to judge it. And God rescues Lot and his family. His wife, of course, in the process looks back and she's turned to salt. And even in the process of God rescuing them with the angels, and the angels are saying, come follow us. Lot says, don't want to go where you want to go. I would rather just go up into the mountains here. And the angels lit him. And while he's up there, I don't know if you know this or not. If not, you can read it later on in Genesis chapter 19. His daughters say, well, our husbands are now dead because we never got married. And they're all killed there in Sodom. And all we have is our father. Let's get him drunk. And he'll get us pregnant. 
And Lot actually sleeps with his daughters unknowingly because he got drunk. And he gives birth to two people, Moab and Ammon. Now, you may not know this, but they became enemies of Israel, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Chapter 12 is a reminder of the call because they're in Haran. He still doesn't fully obey. Finally, Lot separates and they deal, God deals with all that. Ultimately, he now deals with Abram and starts the nation of Israel from him. Folks, was Abram rebellious or was Abram obedient? He was rebellious. God says all along they're a rebellious house. Well, let's just jump ahead to Acts chapter, uh, go to Acts chapter 7, look at verses 35 through 43, back to Stephen's uh, sermon. Acts chapter 7, verses 35 through 43. Stephen says, this Moses, and now we're at the time of Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the, at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." So here, Stephen's recounting the history of Israel. And he said, not only that, when God sent Moses and the signs and the wonders and the miracles, I mean, the parting of the Red Sea and, 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 and the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day and the manna and the quail and all the things he did, what was the reaction of the people to the one God clearly sent as his man to be their prophet and redeemer? They rebelled against him, and they said, who made you a judge over us? We want to go back to Egypt. Go to um, Matthew 23. Look at verses 29 through 39. God not only sent Moses, he sent prophets. Anybody want to take a wild guess what the nation of Israel did to the prophets? They killed them. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verses 29 through 39. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. By the way, did Jesus' words come true? All the people that were sent to him, they killed just like their fathers did. As you're about to see, not only did they reject Moses, not only did Abraham be rebellious in his following in God's plan, and then did they reject Moses, they also killed the prophets, and they also killed who? They killed his son. Go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, look at verses 51 through 53. If you've never really sat down and listened to the sermon of Stephen. Take some time to go back and look at his message here in Acts chapter 7. Now keep in mind as he preaches it, it's his last sermon. In Acts chapter 7 verses 51 through 53 Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. By the way, there are people that tell you that that's impossible. The Bible says it's very possible. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. By the way, does anybody know what happens right after he said you murdered the Messiah? They picked up stones and killed him. Go one more, one more passage, Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. Listen to what Jesus even said. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 20, in verse 9, Jesus is speaking, and it says, He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it, let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, then what then is this, this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus in this parable pretty much laid out their history and what they were going to do. And they knew he was talking to them. But how'd they respond, even though they knew he was talking to them about them? They did it anyway. So I'm going to ask you a question. When God tells Ezekiel, oh, by the way, Ezekiel's in the midst of all this history. He's one of those prophets sent to them. And he's been told by God, as we just saw here, when God reveals himself to Ezekiel and he sees God on his throne and the cherubim and all that stuff we've been studying and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And as we looked at the close of the last study, this is God says, stand up. And the spirit of God stood him on his feet. And God says to him, I am sending you to a rebellious house. Understatement of the year. Here's my question. If this is how rebellious they are, why is God not done with them 
Why do they get another chance when other nations don't? Let's be honest. It's not that Israel still exists because Israel has been the best. There's actually enough biblical proof to say that Israel is the most guilty of all the nations. Does anybody know, want to know why? They had the word of God. They had the revelations of God. They had God revealed to him his law, his person, his sent his, his prophets. The other nations didn't get all of that. And actually the scriptures are very clear that he to whom much is given, much will be required. And the nation of Israel had the most revealed to them from God. Oh, God's revealed himself to all the nations, but let's be biblically, biblically accurate. Not everybody gets an equal amount of revelation. And the nation of Israel has gotten the most. Why do they still exist? And why is God not done with them? Because of his promise. Listen closely. There's two, two things I want you to grasp here. One, because of the promises he made to the forefathers, the patriarchs. And two, because of God's passion for his glory. They're tied together. But God... Oh, by the way, keep this in your mind. I want you to put this in your mind as you read Old Testament. I'm challenging you over and over to study the Old Testament, to read the prophecies, to be able to understand. Was he talking about that time period or was he talking about a pre period future? But as you read the prophecies, keep the scripture in your mind as you do so ahead of time. God who cannot lie, as the scripture says. So if God says something, it has to happen. God who cannot lie. But as we have looked through this, we'll see that God made promises to the nation of Israel, to the forefathers, and God has to keep them or else he will have broken his promise, and he can't do that. At the same time, God is very, very passionate about his glory. If you know the story at all in the history of Israel, there came a time when the nation of Israel was in the wilderness and they had built this golden calf, and God was really upset, and he said, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start over with you. By the way, could God have done that? Sure, he could have. Yet Moses, knowing the heart of God, said, God, that wouldn't look good for you. All the other nations have heard how, what you did in Egypt and how you brought your people out of Egypt and the miracles and you brought them into the wilderness. And if they all just happened to die in the wilderness, it would look like you weren't able to finish what you started and it would look bad for you. And God says, you know me well. You know me well. And so take a second to go with me to Malachi chapter 3. In the passage where Malachi talks about how the nation of Israel had been robbing God of the tithe, we're not going to get into that part of it. But in Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 6 and 7. There's something that God says through Malachi that is one of my favorite, favorite passages when it comes to all the nation of Israel and God's plan and the fact that he's not done with Israel. In Malachi chapter 3, look at verses 6 and 7. I love this. God speaking, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? I mean, where have we gone away? But that's the rest of that is on where they were robbing God by saying he was worthless and that sacrificing to him was worthless. And that's another whole message for another time. But look at how God, God describes himself. I love it. He says, the only reason you're still here, Israel, 
is because I don't change. Oh, don't miss this. If God were to be done with Israel, he would have changed. Do you realize how many Christians are saying he's done with Israel? God says, I'm not done with you because I don't change. That's very important, folks. God who cannot lie. Also, go to Romans chapter 11. I was talking to a pastor one time about this whole topic. Because he was wrestling with whether or not he believed in the church replacing Israel or God not being done with Israel and all this stuff. And I said, Romans chapter 11 is so clear on this. He said, you're the first pastor I've ever heard who said that Romans 11 was clear. I'm like, have you read it? Listen to what it says and tell me if it's not clear. Romans chapter 11, Paul Paul says this. Of course, I turned to Revelation chapter 11 as I was talking to you there. Romans chapter 11, listen to what Paul says. He said, I ask then. Has God rejected his people, meaning the Jews, you'll see that, by no means, Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, you could say again, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Jump down to verse 25, because in the verses I'm skipping over, he just deals with the whole attitude of the fact that he says, then goes on, he says, oh, by the way, you Gentiles don't think you're better than them because you were a wild olive shoot and you by against nature grafted into the the natural olive olive tree and they were cut off but they can be grafted back in very easily and they will be but they were cut off because of unbelief don't you act like you think you're better than them and unfortunately the, the church has felt they were better than them because we're the new Israel and all that stuff it's sad but look at verse 25 lest you be wise in your own sight I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel that's going to be left at the end of the tribulation will be saved as it is written. 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't miss that. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's why Israel still exists, because God cannot lie and he cannot change. And he's made promises that he must keep. And I don't care how creative you get in building your theological schemes using a verse here and a verse there from Scripture. If you put the whole of Scripture together, you clearly see that God will redeem Israel. Is he done with Israel? By no means. Has they cast them off forever? Not at all. Don't miss this. They've experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In the Gentile time period, this church age is simply to do what? To make Israel jealous. Now, we're going to go somewhere in just a little bit today because I'm going to take our study in a direction that you may be surprised. But just recently, over the last few weeks and months, God has begun to open my eyes to something that I've begun to develop into a new series of messages that there are churches that I go to on a regular basis. There's one in Virginia that every, every May I come and every October, at this time I'll be in November when I go back. And there are other churches in Michigan and other places that they just bring me in two or three times a year and they just say, Jim, whatever God's shown you, come preach it for a week. And what God's begun to show me is that the church, because most of Christians today don't believe in a millennial kingdom, they don't believe in Jesus coming back to the earth, they don't believe in the restored nation of Israel and God ruling and reigning from the land, because most two-thirds of Christians today have been taught that the church is the new Israel and the replacement theology, because of that, a lot of things have gone wrong. Folks, let me just say something to you. Your view of end times will affect the rest of your theology. A lot of people say, well, it doesn't really matter what we believe about the end because, you know, we're just all going to end up with God in the end anyway and all our different views on, on end times. Listen to me. The more you look at it and the more you let Scripture speak, your view of how God is going to finish everything up will affect how you live today. And because of this, because the church has thought that it was about them, we've been taught a lot of things that aren't in the Scriptures. I'm going to show you some of those tonight. But at the same time, if we really understand that the church's purpose, God's purpose for the church is to make Israel jealous, it keeps us being reminded of who we are. Oh, by the way, go back to Romans chapter 11 and listen to what it says again in verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so they too... Now have been disobedience, disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then Paul just breaks into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who's been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, by the way, jumps right into chapter 12. And he says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words... We Gentiles have been saved by the grace of God and the mercy of God. But it's really all always been about God and his glory and the nation of Israel and through the nation of Israel. And even the church age is really about Israel. He's using us 
He desires to use us to make Israel jealous. Paul says, I've been called by God to be an ambassador to the Gentiles, and I make a lot of my ministry because I, as you earlier in chapter 90 had said, if I could go to hell and that would let Israel get saved, I'd do it. If my going to hell would allow the nation of Israel to be saved, send me to hell today. A lot of us go, wow, what a thing to say. Well, isn't that what Jesus did so we could be saved? He experienced hell so that we could be saved. Hey, folks, let me just tell you. Paul says, I then, because he's called me to preach to the Gentiles, I want to do what I'm supposed to do in the hopes that some of my Jews that are alive today would become jealous. Even though they've experienced a hardening in part, they haven't all been hardened. And I don't know who God is going to be able to open their eyes, you know, and I want them to see. And he had a view of the church tied to God's purpose in Israel. And because we in the church have not understood God's purpose for us tied to what he's going to do in Israel and for the Jews, we've made the church age about us and we've been taught some things that aren't scriptural, which we'll get to tonight. But what I want to show you again, go back to Isaiah 48. God is passionate about his glory and because he cannot lie and because he does not change and because of the promises that he's made to the patriarchs and because his gifts and his call are irrevocable and because he said to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. And because they never received the land while they were alive, there has to be a coming kingdom. There has to be in Israel the restoration of all the things the prophets have spoken about. As, as Peter preached in Acts chapter 3 verses 17 and following that Jesus has gone to heaven until the time for restoring all the things that the prophets have spoken. And the prophets have spoken the restoring of the nation of Israel and the land and all the promises tied to that, how it's going to be rebuilt. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt from this city to this tower, to this wall, to this gate. And they, oh, by the way, God doesn't lie. They're going to happen. And look at Isaiah 48. Look at what God says. Here he says, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who were called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. God says to them, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I'm announcing to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Kind of like a teenager. I knew that. I know that. You have never, you have never known, never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have, reject, or have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to how God describes himself, and he says, look, I am the only one who can tell you before it happens what's going to happen. 
And I told you way back, and if you do a study of Deuteronomy, you'll see in chapter 32 in the Song of Moses, the whole nation of Israel's history laid out from beginning to end. It's all there. And he says, I told you before it happened so that when it happens, oh, and by the way, when it happens, I did it. You couldn't say, well, my idol did this. There's no way your idol could have done this. I told you it was going to happen hundreds of years before it did. And folks, the Bible says that in the last days, when God redeems and restores Israel, he's going to do it so that all the nations may glorify him because all the things he said that he was going to do in the last days are going to take place and through Israel. And everybody's going to say, God said that. Now he did it. He's God. Do you know what the church is saying? The church is saying he didn't really mean that. It's really about us. We're Israel now. Is that to his glory? Because of this, go to Ezekiel 39. Go to Ezekiel 39. Look at verses 25 through 29. Ezekiel 39. Look at verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Isn't that cool? Why is God going to bring them all back in the very last days? Right now we're seeing the Ezekiel 37 begin, the prophecy begin, but it hasn't been fully done because the nation of Israel, even though they're a nation again in our lifetime and they're coming back from the other nations, they're still Jews all over. In the end, they're going to become from everywhere and all the Jews will be back in the land. And why does God do it? For the sake of his great name and because of his glory and because of his holiness and because of what he has said. And the sad thing is, the church was made because God said he was going to do this. Remember Deuteronomy 32, 21, you're going to go after gods that aren't gods, Israel, and make me jealous. I'm going to take people you don't consider people and make you jealous. But why has he saved us? To display his glory and his grace and his mercy. But also to make Israel jealous. If he's done with them, what's the purpose of making them jealous? Do you understand what I'm saying? Seems silly to make them jealous if they can't ever have a chance to fix why they're jealous. Oh, because of this, because the church has missed God's eternal purpose for Israel, and since much of the church has been taught that they are the new Israel, the church as a whole has bought into wrong theology now, and it has affected our methodology I'm going to talk to you tonight. Just There's many areas that it's manifested itself. The one I want to talk to you about tonight is the church growth movement. Because the church has been taught that we're the new Israel, 
They've taken all the prophecies about what God's going to do with Israel in the last days and how he's going to redeem them, bring them back into the land. There's going to be all these many people worshiping God. And because the church has been taught that it's now us, that's not actually the nation of Israel. It's us. The church has turned those prophecies about what he's going to do with the nation of Israel into it's going to happen to us. And the church is teaching that there's going to be this great revival and that the church is going to get bigger and bigger and we're going to change the world for Jesus. Have you ever heard that kind of preaching? There's dominion theology out there that is incorrect according to the scriptures. And there's this, many of us growing up in different churches, a lot of us all here aren't from the same church. We have all been in churches where the focus was church growth, right? Don't we sit around figuring out how can we grow our church? How can we get more members? How can we increase our numbers? And we've turned it into the purpose of the church is to get more buildings, budgets, and butts in the pew. And that's all we focused on is growing the church. And actually, as God began to open my eyes in the study, that the fact that the church's purpose was to display his glory, but to make Israel jealous, I started to relook at what Jesus had to say about the church and what the scriptures had to say about the church. And I started to realize he never, ever said the church was going to change the world. He never, ever said the church was going to be big. And he never, ever said that it was up to us to go win people to Christ. All the things we've heard. So I want to show you some scriptures that you know, but I'm going to have you put them in this context now. Go with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Listen to what Jesus is, says, says here. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By the way, and then he goes on and says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. How about that? First, let's back up and let the context sink in here. He gathers his disciples. He says, hey, by the way, who are people saying that I am? And they go, well, they're thinking you might be John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. He goes, okay, but what about you? What do you who, do, who do you say I am? And Peter spent, speaks up because of the Holy Spirit, and said, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Johnson, by the way. Simon Barjona means Simon, son of John. John's son. I come from good stock. He said, blessed are you, Simon Johnson. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes, but my Father in heaven. And I'm actually changing your name from Simon now. Earlier, when he had first met him, he said, you are Simon, but you're going to be called Peter one day. At this point now, he says, you are Peter. 
And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, unfortunately, some of us were raised in church and really taught that the church was built on Peter. If you actually did a study of this, you'll find very easily that he's not saying the church is built on Peter, but on Peter's profession of his faith. Because listen, he says, and you are Peter. And in the Greek, that's in the masculine because Peter's a man. And he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And the word rock is in the feminine. Can't be talking about Peter because the Greek would not have used feminine to describe Peter. You're a rock man, and on this rock, your profession of your faith is what I'm going to build my church. But don't miss this. Who said he would build his church? Jesus said, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't even touch it. But we think we're supposed to go build the church. We're supposed to go reach people for Christ. I'm going to show you scripturally, that really wasn't what Jesus taught us. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. Few. Wait a minute. Jesus said that those who find it are going to be few. Did he say that there was going to be massive amount of people who are going to be saved? Now, yes, people have been saved all over the globe during the church age. And there have been thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions who have been saved over the 2,000 years of the church age. But first off, he never said that we were going to go and change the world. He actually said the opposite. Go to John chapter 15. He just said there that most people aren't going to be a part of it. And the ones who will be, will be small in number in comparison. John chapter 15, look at verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. And what is Jesus telling them? He says, by the way, when you do go out and do what I've asked you to do and called you to do, they're not going to like it. And if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Yet, what are our churches now focusing on? Being seeker-friendly. Trying to become palatable. Thinking that if we set up our services in such a way, or have our band to do the kind of music they like, or have our preaching in such a way that it's easier to understand for the masses, if we dumb down things, they'll like us. Jesus said, they're not going to. They're not going to. 
Keep going with me to John 16. Look at what Jesus says in verses 1 through 4. He said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them too. In other words, I'm revealing to you also. I'm telling you ahead of time before it happens so that when it happens, you guys don't freak out and think we're doing something wrong. They're going to kill you for what you're doing. The world's not going to like it. As I send you to the nation of Israel, they're going to reject you and kill you and kick you out of the synagogues. Now, we were told, I'm not going to take the time to turn there because i got a couple more things I want to do before we close. But we were told in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Correct? We were also told in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And we're going to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Understood, correct? But as with Ezekiel, he told us that they may hear or refuse to hear. You remember he said that twice to Ezekiel back in chapter 2? Whether they hear or refuse to hear, you say what I tell them to tell you to say. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, you don't worry about how they react. I love it. Don't even worry about how they look at you. You just do what I've asked you to do, and you don't worry about the response. Go with me real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I want to show you some scriptures here and put these together and let you see this context that Jesus showed us that it ain't up to us whether they get it. And if they're not getting it, we shouldn't change our methods to see if they get it. First Corinthians chapter three, verses five through seven. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? Okay, why, why does God give the growth according to Matthew chapter 16? Because he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers, and you're God's field, God's building. Now, go over to chap- 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, by the way, what does he mean by the mercy of God? No, not just, remember, remember the end of Romans 11? Because the Jews were cut off for a time so he could give us mercy. We who were disobedient, he cut off them off for a time so we could receive mercy. And then when he's done with us, he's going to give them mercy. Because of the mercy of God. Folks, do you realize that the reason you're saved as a Gentile is because Israel rejected God? I've been given mercy because of their rejection so that God would demonstrate his mercy. He's bound everybody over to disobedience that he may have mercy on everyone. And because of the mercy of God, because of the fact that I'm even allowed to be a part of this, by the way, at the end of chapter 11, he goes into chapter 12 where he says, because of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but renew your mind daily so you'll know what his will is. Does anybody know what the very next verse says? Chapter, chapter 12, verse 3 says, um, And don't let any of you think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
but each with sober judgments in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. In other words, not only has God in his mercy saved you, and you should just be saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm a part of what you're doing. And oh, by the way, you're just saving me so that Israel would get jealous. Thank you that you used me to make Israel jealous because I received the benefits of that. Um, in that process, what is it you wanted me to do? I'm not going to try to become more. I'm not going to try to get more, move up in the ladder. I'm not going to try to be something that you never called me to be. What is the role you have for me? And I just want to be used by you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of un unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you catch that? He said, we don't try to get creative in order to share the gospel. We just share it. And if they get it or refuse to get it, it's because God opened their eyes. And if they're blinded, Satan's blinded their eyes. It doesn't have to do with us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 4. Such is the confidence, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Did you catch that? If we have any sufficiency, if it's successful or effective, that came from God, has nothing to do with us. And you want to know how much we have bought into the wrong theology because we've been taught to go win people for Christ and we should be trying to reach people and grow our church. How can we get more numbers? If our numbers are going down, we're doing something wrong. Let me ask you a question and I don't want you to show your hands. I just want you to answer it honestly between you and God. How many of you who have ever shared the gospel with someone and they didn't respond in faith, have thought to yourself, maybe I did it wrong. You think it has something to do with you. You see, because of our misunderstanding of God's purpose for the church and the fact that we thought now that it's all about us and we've misunderstood the prophecies about the end times, we've tried to tie those into the church when all those awesome things are going to happen in the last days, it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. And actually, Jesus' teaching to the church was, look, you're going to go out, and there's not going to be as many as you think. And you know what's happened? Because we've been more focused on increasing our numbers and our membership, we have actually been shocked by the fact that there are people in our church who actually aren't even saved. Well, that's because we have no longer preached the truth of the Scriptures and the Word of God unapologetically. We have tried to make it a good, feel-good place. Instead of, well, we haven't renounced, unfortunately, disgraceful, underhanded ways in the church, have we? Where Paul said we should. Well, let me show you one more passage. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verses 14 through 17. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. 
Who is sufficient for these things? For we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. In other words, look at what he says here. He says, we're, as we go, God leads us triumphantly throughout the world. And to some, we smell really good. And to others, we stink. Who's sufficient for this? Oh, by the way, he answers that question in the verse we just saw. Our sufficiency doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. As you all know, I was in Michigan this past weekend and, and preached, praise the Lord, for those of you who prayed for me, God, my voice got stronger and stronger throughout the weekend, which was amazing in the hours of teaching that I did. And the response was amazing at the church up there. And on Monday, I got on a plane and flew from Detroit to Atlanta and then changed and flew from Atlanta to um, uh, Orlando and got in Orlando about nine o'clock and took my bus to my parking lot and got my car and jumped in my blazer and about 10 something at night was heading back on the beeline to come home and as always I gotta have my 44 ounce soda you know and so there I know that there's a 7-eleven right there at the Narcusi Road exit on Beeline and I can just pull right into there and I always have my styrofoam cups with me and it's nothing to refill them you know and so as I was pulling off there all of a sudden thank the Lord the light was still green my car dies and I just have enough momentum to coast it right through that uh, exit, right into the parking lot of the, of the 7-Eleven. Now, my car is a, a 2001 Blazer that I've been driving for a while, and it's stalled on me a few times. No big deal. I just thought I'd, once I get in the parking space, I'll crank it back up. It wouldn't crank. I tried again. wouldn't crank. So I figured, well, we'll let it rest a little bit. Maybe it's flooded or something. And uh, I'll show how old I am, by the way. We don't flood cars anymore. But, but uh, I said, I'm going to go get my soda, and I'll come back and crank it up. And I come back, and it won't crank, and it won't crank. And I keep trying. I keep trying. Finally, I realize... I need to call AAA. And so I call AAA, and I wait for an hour and a half for AAA to come. It's getting late now. Of course, it's turning into Tuesday. And thank God I was in a well-lit place where I could keep refilling my soda and eat some chicken wings. And uh, 7-Eleven chicken wings are, are, no, not, let me just tell you, I'm still tasting them now. But <laughs> when the tow truck comes, we put it up on the flatbed, you know, work it up onto the flatbed, and I jump in the front seat. And now I'm in the front of a cab with a guy named Carlos from the, um, Puerto Rico who's now over here, and he speaks English pretty well. And we've got an hour drive to Melbourne to have it towed to my mechanic. And I know that wherever I go, I'm going to be the aroma of Christ. And I want to know how I smell to Carlos. Now, I don't try to win Carlos to Christ. Listen closely. I don't also try to share the gospel with Christ, with Carlos. I let my peace go out. In other words, as we were talking and I was getting to know him and asking him about his family and his wife's actually up in Chicago and he's down here because of her good job, but his parents having some health issues and he's living with his parents down here and he's not with his wife, unfortunately, because of distance and all these things that are going on in his life, I would keep throwing out things in the spiritual realm. Talk about the fact that I pastored in Chicago and how God was so awesome to me as I was able to pull into the parking lot there and sit there at the 7-Eleven. I kept throwing out things of the Spirit in hopes that he would respond or ask a question, and he was very good at deflecting anything. Whenever I threw anything spiritual, he would quickly change the subject. I'd wait a few miles, throw another one out, just see how he'd respond. Boom, he'd shut that door and... God said, leave it. See, we've been taught that I'm supposed to share the gospel with him. 
No. Remember when he sent them out two by two? He said, let your peace go out. If it's rejected, move on. Let's move on. I give him plenty of opportunity. He wasn't interested and made clear he wasn't interested. And God was pleased. And it's so freeing to understand that Jesus is going to build his church. I might have just been, I'm not saying Carlos is never going to get saved. But I just might be one of the many that he runs into before God brings him to Christ. And that's okay if I'm one of the many. You see, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. I got that already taken care of. And then as I began to study the scriptures, I saw some things that I've shared with you before. When Paul wrote his letters to the churches, did he ever say, how many are you running? Never. Yet our churches are focused on how many we have in Sunday school, how many we have in worship, keeping track. How are we doing? We have to have how much the offering was last week in the bulletin. We've been taught to measure how we're doing. He didn't give that us, us that job. Oh, by the way, did Paul, this is a shocker. How many times did Paul write and just simply say, how many have you reached for Christ? Never. Never. Actually, if you go and look at the scriptures, you'll see that every time Paul wrote to a church, he only asked two things. Are you growing in your relationship with the Lord? My prayer is that your eyes would be opened. Did you know him better? And are you loving each other in the process? That's all he cared about. Why? Because Jesus is going to build his church. Oh, by the way, as we look at the scriptures, do you remember that in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to the church throughout the church age, and by the end of the church age, he's writing to the church of Laodicea, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Has anybody remembered that that wasn't written to the world? That was written to the church in the last days, and he was writing to the church in the last days, and he says, You're rich and have need of nothing, you think. Yeah, you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. All descriptions of the lost. We can build big buildings and get big numbers in our congregations, but we can be as lost as everybody else, thinking we're serving God when we have gotten away from the scriptures. We've gotten away from what it means to just teach the whole counsel of God. And the church is not about us. It's about Israel and God's glory. Oh, in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This whole mindset that the church was going to change the world is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. We pastors have wrestled with this silly thing all these years. And when our church isn't growing, we fire the pastor. Don't we? It's his fault. He must be doing something wrong. If we had the right guy here, then we'd be fine. And Jesus says to his church in the last days, Hello? Hello? You're having your services. You got your big buildings and your air conditioning. Your parking lot's full. You even got golf carts to get them all in. I'm not in there. Well, I'm in there in a few people. But as a whole, you're out there working for me and doing things I never expected you to do or asked you to do. I just told you that I'm going to build my church. 
And you need to not think of yourself more highly and just humbly lay yourself on the altar and say, Lord, you saved me for your purposes and by your grace, whatever you want to do, you do. Now, real quickly, and I know what time it is and we'll finish in two minutes. Go back to Ezekiel chapter two. I have to try to keep us pretty much together with the other group. And look at verses eight and nine. We'll deal with what the scroll is next week. But it says, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. And when I looked, I behold, a hand was stretched out to me. And behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. By the way, our preachers today would rather preach on the positive. They don't want to talk about the negative. They don't want to talk about the bad stuff. But if you look at it, most of us who have been called to preach the word of God have been called to preach warning, judgment. There is grace and mercy. But I, if I don't ever talk about the bad stuff, I can't share the gospel. Right? If you don't, aren't allowed to talk about sin and judgment, how can you share the gospel? Because Jesus came to do what? Pay for our sins. If I can't talk about your sin, I can't share the gospel. I want to challenge you, though. We'll deal with this more next week as well. Don't you be rebellious either. See, God had a purpose for Ezekiel, and God now says, oh, by the way, I'm going to send you to speak to this rebellious house. Don't you be rebellious either, Ezekiel. You do what I've asked you to do. God's really good, by the way, if he's got a plan for your life and my life. He's really good at getting us where he wants us to be. Just ask Jonah. God said to Jonah, I got a role for you. Jonah didn't just say no, folks. He said, heck no. But guess what? Jonah ended up in Nineveh anyway, didn't he? In Deuteronomy 32, you can look at it later on, verses 1 through 11. David says, when I was in disobedience, I was in misery. My bones were dry. I mean, it hurt until I got realigned with your plan for my life. And then Scripture, God says in that passage in, in, in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11, he says, don't be like the horse or the mule, which you have to put a bit in its mouth to get it to go where he wants it to go. Just surrender to what God has for you and find out what he wants for you to do and just do that. And leave the results to him, whether they hear or don't hear. Don't worry about how you did. Just do what he's asked you to do. And what's really cool is when we stop worrying about the results, it's so freeing. Because as I teach the, God, the Word of God, if you get it, God opened your eyes. And if you don't get it, not my job. Isn't that cool? Well, you don't care. Oh, I care. I pray you do. But I also know if you do, it has nothing to do with Jim Johnson. See you next week. Thanks for coming. <laughs>